Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL Radio. We're very pleased today to welcome as our guest, John Anzalone. And Matt, take it away and introduce our guest. Yeah, we want to get right into it. So John Anzalone, uh, Anzo, to those of us who are fortunate enough to know him, uh, is one of the nation's top pollsters. He's one of our top messaging strategists. He has more than 25 years of polling experience. He has polled for the presidential campaigns of Barack Obama in both 2008 and 2012, Hillary Clinton, and is currently the pollster for Joe Biden. And as a pollster, he has helped elect U.S. senators, governors, dozens of members of Congress, and numerous other office holders up and down the ballot. So we are really thrilled to have John Anzalone on Off the Record. John, welcome. Great, great to have the team back together. <laughs> I mean, I was one of those successful races. So, John, it's a, it's a real pleasure. It brings back happy memories. Yeah, good times, for sure. There you go. So, Matt, why don't you launch with the first tough question? This is, yeah, this is, I'm pitching hardball here. So, John, look, let, let's, start with, let's start with Joe Biden. You've known the vice president for, what, 30 years? Yeah. So, I mean, look, he's obviously led a very public life for more than 40 years. Is there something that you've experienced with him that you can share with our listeners that people may not know or may not realize even after all that time in public life? Something funny or touching or unusual that we sure. give people the kind of window that you have into what he's like? Well, you know, here's what I think kind of encapsulizes Joe Biden is, is how he treats people, right? I mean, I think that one of the reasons that he leads by a historic margin right now is that people feel that they know him, right? Um, and voters feel that this is a guy who gets them, who's lived, you know, part of their life. Um, you know, when I was a 23-year-old field organizer in Biden, or in Iowa for Biden for president in, in, in 1987, uh, I was the first guy out there. There was me and a guy named Bruce Keppel. There was two of us who were field organizers who, you know, at the beginning of any campaign, uh, before everything builds up. And so we were fortunate enough to have then Senator Biden in the state a lot. And we basically just did everything. And he just has the capacity of making you feel like the most special person in the room, even if you're just a little field organizer, right? And, you know, he just takes the time uh, right, uh, um, uh, to get to know you and your, your family. I mean, he, uh, over the years, got to spend some tremendous time with my dad, who was a long haul trucker and teamster uh, as recently as a couple Octobers ago uh, in my hometown where, you know, he pulled over, uh, you know, the folding chair and sat two inches from my dad and they, you know, told teamster stories for 20 minutes. He's that type of guy. And he's the guy who calls you when your dad passes away, which happened to me in September. And so he's the real deal. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm kind of getting uh, uh, goosebumps right now. He's the guy who does have empathy and compassion and understanding and relatability. Um, and it's not about him, right? I mean, you never feel like it's about him. You feel like it truly is about impacting, you know, working families and small businesses uh, and trying to help their lives. And, and that's Joe Biden. And that's why I think he'll win. So here we are. Uh, 51 days, maybe 50, 50 or 51 days, uh, maybe less. Who knows? I mean, we're, it, the, the clock is ticking. We're, we're, we're a few weeks away from election day. What 
do you think are the most important things that the Biden campaign needs to do in order to win? And, and I just want to set the context that when I was out uh, standing at the polls recently, uh, we had very interesting conversations with both independent voters and, and hardcore Republicans who uh, we can put in a different category. But what I heard from them was, well, this guy's pretty old and uh, we're not sure he's all there. That message uh, that the Trump campaign has been pushing um, is, has, a, has a possibility of infecting some voters. So what do you think Biden's got to do to win? All right, well, Paul, that was a lot of different questions, but I'm going to go with the first one, which is <laughs> what do we got to do? Uh, I won't uh, touch the other one. Um, listen, I think we are, it's not what do we got to do, it's what we are doing. And I think that this campaign is, you know, I know it's cliche, but has always run like it's behind because we know what's at stake, right? I mean, there is a tremendous amount at stake uh, for this country. And so, you know, this has been a, a very well-funded campaign, which in itself uh, is an indicator, right, uh, of support for Biden uh, and change. Uh, and so we've been communicating in the six main uh, battleground states, plus a couple other ones like Minnesota and Nevada, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, we're focused on 270. Uh, and in our battleground states, we're also focused on treating all voters like persuadable voters. Like, you know, if you are in Florida and you're Latino or you're African-American or where, you know, we can, we can pick any state. If you're in Nevada and you're, you're Filipino and Asian-American, we're treating everyone like persuadable voters. So we're not, you know, this isn't the old Democratic campaign where you treat our base vote like GOTV targets. We've been communicating with whether you're a suburban white women, woman in Oakland County, Michigan, or you're an African-American in Raleigh, or you're a Latino uh, in Dade County. We've been communicating with you since June, uh, and we're gonna keep communicating and uh, our field organization uh, working all groups uh, to the very end. I mean, we're gonna narrow the margin in Republican bases like rural voters, with white working class voters. Uh, and so, you know, we're doing the full press. Uh, and I think that that's what's really important that we have a, you know, we have a president who's, you know, uh, vulnerable, uh, who people feel uh, have completely mishandled the, uh, the biggest crisis uh, in his presidency, his job rating uh, for handling the coronavirus, according to the new Ipsos poll is 35% positive 65% negative. So, you know, that's what we're doing. I mean, we're going out there and we're, we're going to lock down um, our uh, voters. We're going to get them to vote early, uh, whether it's vote by mail or whether it's early vote uh, uh, polling place. Uh, and we're going to lock those votes down. And, and that's what we're going to do here for the next uh, 50 days. Now, let me, I'm just going to follow up and reflect back for some of our listeners uh, who may not be completely conversant with the terms. Um, John, when you, you've talked about treating every voter like a persuadable voter, um, and you've contrasted that with sort of just saying, okay, we're not just going to the base to turn them out. Um, in, in the world of politics, for people who are not deep in, involved, is it unusual for a campaign to treat every, everybody like a persuadable voter? Um, and is that, is that what you mean by your full yeah, court press? I mean, listen, we want everyone at the end of the day, whether you're white, black, brown, 
whether you're, again, a suburban woman or a white working class mother, we want them to know what Joe Biden's vision and agenda is. We want them to know that he's on your side, you know, and he's going to help working families and small businesses, that they're going to be the priority, not the wealthy and the big corporations. Um, and we want everyone to have a real firm foundation of where this guy came from, what he's done in his life, uh, and what he's going to do for you uh, on the economic front, on the healthcare front, on the COVID front. Um, that's important. Uh, and I think that that, and what is I'm saying, is a little different. It's not enough to say, hey, get out to the polls and vote. It's, it's, hey, get out the polls vote because here's Joe Biden's plan for economic recovery for working families and small businesses. This is what Joe Biden's going to do on racial equality. This is what Joe Biden's going to do on, on climate change. And so, you know, um, voters need to know that. And, and that's what I mean about locking people down. You know, one of the remarkable things about this presidential race is, at least in the public polls, how stable it's been. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really been about in that range of a five to nine point lead for Biden since the start of the year, before he even clinched the nomination. So assuming that you're seeing the same thing internally, not that I'm asking you to, to reveal that, yeah. that, that, that kind of stability. Why is that? Is it because partisan lines are so set these days or that people really know these two candidates so well or, or something else going on? Yeah. So stability, I think at the, at the end of this race, when there's all these political books written, I think that um, one of the storylines is going to be Biden's stable um, uh, numbers. Uh, we saw it in the primary. I mean, where he, when he announced to when he became the nominee, his numbers didn't budge. Uh, other people went up and down. Um, and, but he hasn't. And since, you know, quite frankly, the beginning of the year, if you take a look at the numbers between Biden and Trump, it has been, like you said, straight line. If you compare those to 16 to 12 and to eight, it's really kind of amazing because you see a bunch of moving up and down. And not only is the stability of his numbers, uh, a storyline, but where his numbers are in terms of post-convention. Uh, you know, when we, if you take the aggregators, you know, the 538 or real clear politics, the day before the Democratic convention, Biden was at 50-51 and he was up by eight points. After the Republican convention, a week after the Republican convention, he was at 50-51 and the margin was seven and a half points. So, you know, a half a point. And so stability, but also that he's been at 50 or above uh, after both 2016 conventions, um, it was 43-43 or 43-44. Uh, so again, Biden's outperforming uh, Clinton by seven points. After the 2012 conventions, 47-47 with Romney, um, Obi uh, uh, Obama. So yeah, um, uh, Biden's outperforming uh, Barack Obama. And part of that is, is because there's a new coalition. Um, you know, Biden has consistently led with independence, key group college-educated voters, suburbanites, and seniors. And so uh, those are groups that Trump won, but people always forget this. Those are groups that Romney won, right? That Obama didn't win independents, college-educated voters, suburbanites, or seniors. The last Democratic nominee to win seniors, Al Gore in 2000. So that shows you the strength of Joe Biden, right? Um, you know, he's not a scary nom Democratic nominee. I mean, people know this guy. They know he's not a radical guy as they try to um, um, portray him. And so again, like where we are, we're not overconfident, we're not complacent, we're working really hard for the next 50 days. 
So, John, we have about uh, three minutes uh, in this segment. So let me ask you a question that could take a couple of weeks. A lot of our listeners are nervous Democrats, and I, yeah. I, know, th I know that's redundant. So th they'll be listening to this hoping for positive signs besides the top-line horse race numbers. Are, are there any data points that you could share, uh, publicly available data points that you think – uh, our listeners should pay attention to over sure. these last yeah. few weeks. And the public polls have shown this. There's, a, there's some really good data points that aren't reported a lot. First of all, if you did not vote in 2016, right? I mean, we had Democratic voters who, you know, thought Hillary was going to win as, you know, didn't vote um, or new registrants. Uh, Biden leads those group 52-32. So again, you hear a lot about the hit, the hidden Trump vote or, oh, tr Trump's going to get more people out. Well, Trump got a lot of people out that didn't vote in 12, but voted in 16. We had a lot of people who voted in 12, but didn't vote in 16. And so new voters are going our way. Also, a really uh, uh, an erosion in, in people who were saying that they're going to vote for third party candidates. At this point in time in 2016, it was double digits in the polling. Right. And we win them two to one right now. If you voted for a third party candidate, you know, again, a lot of protest votes by Democrats who thought Hillary was going to win, voted for Stein, voted for Johnston. Those people now are voting uh, again, two to one uh, for Biden. And then you have these uh, uh, people who dislike both candidates. Right. Trump won them by 20 points. We're winning them by 30 points. So there's all these really interesting indicators out there um, about where we're going. And I'll throw one other one out there. Joe Biden is winning with active military service members. This is unheard of. Uh, Trump won them two to one. Uh, Romney won them. And the Military Times just put a military poll out that showed Biden is winning 43-37 and with officers is over 50%. So again, a lot of interesting tidbits out there. Great. Uh, this is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Uh, we're talking with pollster John Anzalone about the Biden campaign and the Democratic uh, nominee for President of the United States. We're, uh, for our radio listeners, coming to you on WKXL, streamed at nhtalkradio.com. We'll take a short break and be back after this. We are back. It is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL. We're talking to John Anzalone, top Democratic pollster, deep into the Biden campaign about what it's going to take and what it looks like just a few weeks out from Election Day. Matt, I'll turn it over to you for the next softball question. <laughs> Great. You know, I wanted to follow up on something, John, you said a few minutes ago about how the Biden campaign is really treating all voters as persuadable voters. And it's interesting because with all the talk in politics circles about negative partisanship and how much people stick with their political tribes, I wanted to ask about swing voters and, you know, notwithstanding the strategy of, for the Biden campaign, reaching out to all of them, um, you know, you are a top expert for people who don't know about running democratic races in tough territory, in Republican-leaning, Southern, rural areas that aren't traditionally Democratic strongholds. So I guess it's kind of a broad question beyond the Biden campaign even. Do you think that at this point in 2020, there are a, a, a meaningful number 
of swing voters, especially for down ballot races at sure. the House level. And um, you know, do you think that it is a winning strategy, let's say for a congressional race in a tough blue dog-ish kind of district, is it a winning strategy to focus on persuadable voters or nowadays do you really have to focus more on motivating your own side? No, I think that, I think it's a false choice. Like there's a lot of this conversation, right? Um, listen, independents still win, self-identified independents still win elections. Like, you know, Paul, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, in 2006, you know, uh, um, uh, independents went 60-40 for Democrats and we take the house back, right. you know? Uh, in 2008, we win independents. In 2010, we lost independence 60-40 and they get the house back. Yeah. Well, you know, go back to 2018. And so again, it is a universe. Uh, Gallup has shown, for example, that people who identify as Republicans have keep, kept going down. So there's a universe of people who don't like Trump, maybe embarrassed of Trump who are now independent, right? And so it is an important group, without a doubt. Uh, you want to win independence. It um, increases the chances of you winning uh, by a large amount. And so um, there are swing voters out there. Now, in a presidential race during this time, you've seen undecideds are really small. Uh, that doesn't mean that swing voters aren't important. It's just that right now, swing voters are breaking for Joe Biden by double digits, <laughs> right? It's, it's not that there's not swing voters out there, but they're making, they're making a decision there. And, and again, a lot of that has to do with one, they're comfortable with Joe Biden. They like that he has experience because the thing that is most vulnerable about Trump is that he showed us an experience handling the crisis. He didn't take it serious enough. You know, he didn't listen to medical experts. He didn't have a plan. And oh, guess what? We're sitting here in September and he still doesn't have a plan. And he goes out and he campaigns as if we're not in a pandemic with, you know, two or 3,000 people in a small space, not wearing masks, no social distancing. So again, he's feeding in, uh, quite frankly, to uh, his failures. There you go. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about... Um, when I, when I came in in 2006, there were a substantial number of blue dog Democrats. Yeah. It, was, it was a real cadre of people. And lately in the party, in, in the Democratic Party, uh, there's a lot of talk about, gee, we're swinging hard to the left. And there's the far left, the progressive movement. There's the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is as far from one of my former blue dog Democrat colleagues, as I can imagine. And I was reading the other day about a candidate in Montana who was a, who put an ad out. Um, uh, she was shooting a shotgun. She was riding in a truck. She was drinking beer and uh, she was a Democrat. Um, so what does it take for a Democrat to be successful in those races? And uh, is the party uh, amenable? Because I remember back in 06, you know, it was a pretty broad tent in terms of the Democratic coalition. Yes, we'll take blue dog Democrats, even if uh, on, on some social issues they're squishy. We're going to take them because we want to take the House back. What's happening now and what are Democrats doing? Well, I think that if you take a look at how we're going to take the Senate back, it's going to be with moderate Democrats. Um, Mark Kelly in Arizona, you know, Steve Bullock uh, in Montana, Hickenlooper uh, in Colorado, um, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina. I mean, these are all moderate Democrats. I mean, we've had some real successes of late. Um, 
you know, some of my clients. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan was the moderate in the primary, right? I mean, she ran against two other uh, um, uh, Democrats to her left. Steve Sisolak in Nevada, uh, who beat the hell out of Trump today. It was really good. You should look at those um, uh, quotes from him coming into Nevada. Was, again, the moderate. I mean, he, you know, there was a big, big campaign against him in the primary that he wasn't um, um, uh, liberal enough. You know, John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, Doug Jones in Alabama, uh, Roy Cooper in North Carolina have all shown that you can win uh, in the South. So, you know, uh, a different makeup in the House without a doubt than 2006, where everyone, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of those blue dogs that you came in with uh, got beat uh, in 10. Um, but I think that there's a real resurgence um, of if we have really good candidates in really tough places, uh, you can win. And that could be Louisiana, but it could also be, you know, South Dakota or Kansas, right, where we've had some, uh, some successes. Um, and so, you know, again, we have to be a big tent. We have to understand uh, that you may not agree with John Bell Edwards' politics uh, uh, in, you know, in Louisiana, but him being there matters. Uh, the first day he took office by executive order, he expanded Medicaid and 500,000 people, working families in Louisiana uh, were covered with health insurance. I'll take that trade off any day, right? Uh, and so we need to be a big party because we're about helping people. Uh, and so we can have differences, uh, but we can also elect people who you disagree with because they can make a big difference. Amen. Well, let's talk about the challenge of doing your job this year. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, the pandemic, things have been put a little bit in a blender, right? You know, so as a pollster, it seems like response rates are maybe going up. Yeah. People are at home. So maybe that makes your job a little bit easier. We had some lessons learned from 2016 about, you know, maybe for other people, I'm sure you got it right, about accounting for uh, education levels, yeah. um, you know, as you poll people. On the other hand, it seems like figuring out who's actually going to be a likely voter this year might be a little bit trickier. So is it easier or harder for you to get an accurate read on what's going on this time around? And for those nervous Democrats that Paul is talking about, do you think that people should feel more or less confident in what they're seeing in the public polls? Yeah. Well, listen, I think that first you have to acknowledge that there is a collective PTSD uh, about polling and what we do. And we, you know, we, we, we you know, have to take some of the blame for that, for sure. Um, and I think that we also have to acknowledge that, you know, until we have election results and until, you know, Joe Biden puts his hand on the Bible, you know, people are going to still in the back of their mind um, not really be sure. I mean, we feel very confident in how we changed um, our processes uh, and methodologies. And we saw in 2018, we were kind of back at it. We, you know, we were back, right? And in, in, in terms of, of the pronostication part uh, of what we do. So, you know, everyone is taking it very seriously about how we collect interviews um, and correcting some of the problems that we were having, getting not only uh, non-college educated whites, but the right type of non-college educated whites, right? Um, and so, again, I think that there is better polling out there. I think that what we're seeing is more accurate because Trump is not a hypothetical president. He is the president. He's being judged as president. Um, and so I think it's just easier to poll Donald Trump. And I think that there was a lot of people moving at the very end 
especially after the Comey uh, thing on October 28th. And so I just think that the dynamics are such that it's much easier. I think that if we were not in a pandemic, it might have been even more difficult, but people are now judging Donald Trump as, about his fail, failures. In some ways, they're judging him not on, oh, you know, I don't like his behavior, but I like part of his agenda. They're judging him as his performance as president and that they are giving him really bad marks. Well, it's true he's getting bad marks, but he thinks he's going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, he's, uh, he, he's, he's riding, riding high. I mean, he's ignoring the pandemic. He's ignoring uh, the economy. He's ignoring the people, but he's uh, campaigning hard for the Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe he ought to spend his time just campaigning for that. And uh, who knows? But it's unlikely he's going to win it. Now, but, but lest, I, lest, I, lest I digress too far. Slight digress. Yes, yeah, you do a lot of, uh, you do your work for candidates and not for the broader public. And at the same time, there has been a lot more public focus on your profession uh, in recent years and what polls are good at doing and what they're not good at doing. What do, if you, uh, you have the bully pulpit, what do you wish the public understood better about polling and what you do and uh and and how to and, and how to how to take it well i think that listen i think that what i do and what you know voters see in the public is of course really dramatically different um we are now in a period where you know you could have two three four different public polls drop every day. I mean, if you go back to like 2000, you might have had, you know, four or five major polls, <clears throat> polling firms, and that's it, right? Polling, you know, media firms. Um, now, you know, there's 20. Uh, and so, you know, it's just kind of like, it, it's political pornography in some ways is what polling is, right? Um, and there's no polling police and, you know, everyone does it differently and there's a lot of shitty polls out there. Um, that's clearly different than what we do. And I'm not sure I think that there's the bandwidth to let people know what we do, but mostly what we do, as you know, uh, is message development, right? I mean, that's thematics and message development. Uh, and, you know, everything that we do usually gets turned into a TV commercial or a mail piece, et cetera. We're about helping campaigns focus on the messages that penetrate uh, with voters. And that's just very different from how real people every day look at a poll. All they're like, oh, well, a poll came out today and said, you know, Biden's up three points in Florida. And then an hour later, there's another poll that says it's dead even and he's losing Hispanics, which of course he's not. And that poll didn't do bilingual phony. So it's like, it's maddening. I spend way too much of my day, unfortunately, litigating public polls. That's not going to ever change. Uh, and no one's probably going to ever really understand what we do. And that's just part of life. Yep. So, as you know, I'm going to have to leave in a couple minutes there, Matt. Yeah, we, yeah. Got, we, have, we have three left. Three minutes. All right, let me give, let, let's give John his, uh, let's give John his last question. And then um, for our listeners, he has to go back to uh, trying to help save our country. So <laughs> you're going to let him go do that. All right, um, set up a little, uh, a little argument that I've been having. Um, on the one hand, within the last 10 days, we had a revelation that Trump called our fallen soldiers losers and suckers, yeah. which is a conscience-shocking statement from anyone, let alone uh, commander-in-chief. 
On the other hand, we had the revelation that he knew from the very beginning about how deadly and contagious COVID was, and not only withheld that information, that candor from the American people, but took proactive steps to limit the amount of response from the federal government. Um, I have actually, I'm not going to give away which one I've argued is going to be more impactful on the race. Do you have a sense which of those is going to have a bigger? Well, yeah, I mean, just my gut. Naturally, both of them. Um, you know, Donald Trump lost an entire week in a presidential campaign that, as of last week, was what there was only eight weeks left. One eighth of an entire rest of the campaign, he lost his message right on the Atlantic article and the Bob Woodward uh, book. Um, that that's a bad week for Donald Trump. That's a good week for Joe Biden. Um, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that we've seen in American politics is that if there's video or audio of something, it's believable, right? Um, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, being able to hear him say it, uh, and so you can't refute it, it happened, you can put a spin on it, uh, but the believability markers is way high. And so I think it confirms what people uh, kind of felt early on, uh, and then there becomes kind of like pandemic uh, fatigue, and now you, you confirm it again, and you're working at home, and you have two kids who are at school or at online at school, but they can't go to school, and er the chaos of your life is confirmed that this guy had um, a, a hand in your chaos, uh, and that is very, very bad. It is very reassuring. I, I, I'm sweating here to hear that you, you, the, the top pollster in democratic politics agreed with my assessment in my article yeah. just last week. So that's, that's a big relief. We should <laughs> well, let John go. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's great seeing you guys and I appreciate what you're doing. Um, glad to have the team back together and, and appreciate you having me on. John, thank you for joining us. This was really great. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We've been talking to top Democratic pollster John Anzalone with views and perspective on what's going on in the sprint to the presidency. Uh, we'll be back after this. Welcome back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced right here at WKXL. Matt Robeson, who writes for the alternate and writes the great blog, amoreperfectunionforum.com. Uh, and me, I'm just the straight man, because Matt, Matt's the funny guy in this show. We've had, we've just had a we, we've just had a great half an hour with John Anzalone. Now, we didn't talk about it a lot, but John Anzalone uh, polled for me when I was running for Congress, as I recall. It's when he could, he could work for a, a small, no-ball congressional race, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, but now, now he is, he, is, he is riding with Biden. He is the Joe Biden uh, top pollster, and he really knows uh, knows what's going on. Yeah, I mean, for our listeners, I didn't want to belabor the bio on uh, John um, so that we could get in every moment of him talking uh, that, that we could in the in the time we had with him. Um, but you know, I made a comment to uh, a colleague um, 
actually it was our former guest, our guest from two weeks ago, Jim Papa, back in 2008, about how uh, your campaign employed the rising star in democratic politics, John Anzalone. And he turned to me and he said, Matt, Anzalone's star has risen. Um, he has been uh, an established force um, and, and truly uh, one of the top message strategists and uh, pollsters uh, in politics, Republican or Democrat, for a long time. So um, that was really a great set of insights. What, what was your top takeaway from talking to him? Well, you know, it, it, late, on, late in the interview, we asked him about public perception of pollsters and what his job uh, actually was. And that, to me, was was a, was a, was was critical information for people who may be political nerds and and for the for the sake of our show Matt I guess we can confess to being political nerds although you're really nerdy and I'm just naive and I just go along with whatever you tell me but but the the takeaway is that that for somebody like John Anzalone collecting the data uh, and doing the polling, uh, and it's a very complex process um, to, to get it right and to make sure that your numbers are good in terms of what you have to go through. That's a part of the job, but it's not just collecting the data and spitting out numbers. It's developing the winning messages and strategic emotionally resonant messaging from that data that is going to be able to communicate with voters and and then as he said uh not just in this case um going out to tell people get out to vote um and let's motivate the expected base to get out to vote they are uh, taking a a a strategic imperative to reach every voter with messaging about uh, and communicating about uh, Joe Biden and what he's going to do, what his history is, what he's about, why to vote for him. They're treating everybody like they need to be persuaded, not just turned out to vote. And, and that makes the pollster's job really, really interesting because it broadens the kind of strategic messaging that has to be done. Um, it, it, it is a we take no vote for granted approach, uh, but it highlights the pollster's job as a key part of the messaging and communication team. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's that's a good revelation for people, you know, to think about what their job is when the campaign team. And I think in the future, it would be interesting for us to dive a little bit deeper into what does a campaign team actually look like? What do they do? Uh, how does that work behind the curtain? You know, what I, what I took away, um, I thought it was a fascinating data point that he shared um, about how uh, uh, third party candidates are polling right now that really correlates with what he's seeing in, in his internal polling with what we're seeing in public polls. The New York Times Siena poll of uh, four swing states came out late last week, generated some headlines. One of the things that jumped out to me was that the libertarian candidate, Joe Jorgensen, uh, across states is polling at a few percentage points, three and 4% respectively in uh, New Hampshire uh, and in Nevada. 
Um, and that's significant in a race where that poll has Biden ahead by three or four points on its own. At the same time, the Green Party candidate polling at 0%. So what that tells me is that Biden has consolidated the support of progressives and of Democrats um, and is not having the same kind of third party defection that we saw at elevated levels in 2016. And that was really disastrous for the Clinton campaign, especially in uh, states like Wisconsin. I also thought it was interesting that he brought up the fact that Obama did not win independence in 2012. Um, it's the kind of thing that is rarely thought of, but it kind of goes to the broader point that if he wasn't winning independence, what it means is that he was doing exceptionally well among Democrats. Um, and you know that just kind of goes to the point that, you know, as John was saying, fewer and fewer voters are identifying, especially these days with the embarrassment at the top of the party, as Republicans. Um, more voters identify as independents or as Democrats. Um, and so that just means that uh, when more people are able to access the vote and um, as turnout goes up um, and we can bring in, uh, you know, those, those light voters, um, that does tend to break toward the Democrats. It's a, it's a hotly contested, you know, debate point uh, among pollsters. But, you know, it goes to show there are more people who are generally on Biden's side and on the Democrat side out there. Um, and it seems like right now the Biden campaign is doing a pretty good job of capturing them and motivating them. So what that makes me think about is, number one, um, in the New Hampshire primaries, we set a record for turnout. So it seems to me that people are generally paying uh, more attention and are more revved up about this election. You've got, you've got for Democrats, um, what Democrats thrive on, which is an evil villain on the other side, you've got you've got somebody who's demonstrably bad, and not just bad in the conventional sense of we disagree with his policies, but somebody who has shown himself to be morally bankrupt to an unprecedented degree. Um, people are at home. People are scared of what they see, um, and they are, I believe, really angry. They are angry about the state of the world, angry about the state of the country, angry about Donald Trump. And that would tend to suggest that they are not necessarily going to be swayed to the same degree by third party candidates. And for independents, many of whom, as you say, may be lapsed even if momentarily lapsed Republicans, or as I am fond of calling um, my, my friends who still um, adhere to sticking an R next to their name, Republicans of conscience. And, and I know quite a few Republicans of conscience who are at their wits end about what has happened to their party and what Donald Trump represents. They fear that uh, the Republican brand has been Irre irretrievably damaged. Um, we'll see that that's going to that can be a subject uh, for future shows. But certainly, um, the independent vote um, is going to be absolutely crucial in this election. And if it's now uh, swinging pretty hard toward Biden, uh, 
that's that's a good sign because those are those gen, gen we genuinely can you know i've always said of independence a third lean democratic a third lean republican and the third are truly can't make can't make up their minds one interesting statistic i'd like to see from new hampshire is i wonder if we can find out how many of the voters who voted for example in the democratic primary were independents who uh who took a democratic ballot as permitted in new hampshire and then after the election switch back to independent so we get it's some really high number but yeah because you know and i mean just for our listeners i mean because new hampshire has this unusual system where you can't do that you can uh be unenrolled uh which means independent um and then you can choose to vote in one party's primary and then return to unenrolled status as you walk out the door we do see that typically as a pattern in new hampshire right where people will come in and that's by the way emblematic of the experience across the country as john was saying rising numbers of voters are identifying as independents it doesn't mean that in their political behavior they are truly swing voters swing and independent aren't necessarily synonyms. Sure. it just means that they're not uh, they're, they don't want to identify with one party. They still, the, the majority of independents still behave as partisans. And I think you're right. It's very likely, since we saw record turnout, that we're seeing those uh, unenrolled, those independent voters who are really, you know, Democratic leaning coming out of the woodwork. I think it's interesting, as you bring up, that um, the voter turnout was so high. And we're seeing that consistently. We've seen it in the primaries um, as, as well during the presidential primary process. Turnout was high, interest was high. It was one of the big questions that um, uh, analysts were trying to figure out. They were already projecting record high turnout in this election. Then the pandemic happened. They weren't sure what was gonna happen. It does seem like we're getting some data points here that confirm that yes, voter interest is remaining extremely high. They may be opting to vote. I think it was 25% of the vote last week came in in New Hampshire via mail. That's a record. It's a very high proportion of mail-in, but still the voter interest is very high. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is worth picking up on in, in what you were saying is that part of what's driving that voter interest is having a villain. Um, and it's interesting that Democrats have a very defined villain um, in Donald Trump. One of the interesting things I've noticed in Republican messaging over the last couple of weeks, especially at the convention, is that Joe Biden does not fit central casting as a villain. Um, it is very, very hard to <laughs> say this guy is, um, you know, some kind of a uh, mustache twirling um, bad guy. And so what you've seen out of Republicans is this idea that, well, maybe Joe Biden isn't himself that bad, but as you alluded to earlier, maybe he's not all that with it. And he's just a Trojan horse for shadowy, you know, social forces on the left. Right. This is, uh, you know, a, a load of hooey. But, um, you know, so one of the interesting things that I'll be looking at over the next seven weeks is the extent to which they can make that stick. I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so much messaging about violence and protests and Black Lives Matter coming out of Republicans because they're trying to find any villain that can stick in the minds of voters that they can somehow glow on to Joe Biden because he is just not that kind of a target. Well, you know, and, 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 and the left, uh, to its uh, usual discredit, um, uh, 
came out with the slogan defund the police instead of instead of uh, let's let let let's find all you know some alternatives um, to policing or let's reinvest in social services as opposed to saying defund the police. I mean, you know, uh, so so we handed the message point to um, to the Trump campaign and as the protests. Um, inspired, it seems, by those on the right and probably paid thugs and, and Trump sending in the federales um, as the protests turned uh, somewhat destructive. Um, it gave the Trump people the, da the, the messaging points they had hoped for uh, when they inspired rioting uh, or created the rioting to be able to use it in a 30 in a 30 second ad. But it doesn't Given the numbers that we discussed with John Anzalone about the stability of the five to nine point lead for Biden since way back when, without any significant change in the convention, there seems to be a stable trend right now. We are in mid-September. Uh, you never know what the October surprise is. It may be that Trump delivered his own October surprise to us in mid-September with the Woodward with the Woodward book and the Woodward tapes because he can say whatever he wants. But when you hear him on tape and then as the news has been doing, compare what Trump said to Woodward on tape and what he said to the public about coronavirus, people... We're, we're, we're still seeing, I mean, I don't know, 5,000, I don't know what the numbers are, but we're, are we, we're maybe over 200,000 deaths in this country from a president who simply lied. Ladies and gentlemen. In the 30 seconds or so that we have left, I mean, I think that's, that was exactly the point that I was sort of driving at at that last question with John and, you know, it was the subject of my article at the end of last week, right, was, yeah. The big impact here is we've got seven weeks to go. As John said, you know, all of last week was lost from a messaging standpoint um, to Trump. And now that the focus is going to turn back to COVID and away from what they're trying to drive about violence, et cetera, that only politically helps Joe Biden. It's Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on Off the Record, produced by WKXL. We'll take a very short break and we'll be right back to wrap up. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by our good friends at WKXL. We've had a great time talking to John Anzalone. And then Matt and I got to got to talk about what John Anzalone said, which, frankly, pretty interesting because we're political nerds. Matt, uh, let's do more of this. I, I think figuring out uh, messaging and talking about how campaigns work is going to be something we ought to help people understand because I don't think folks really know. Well, it, it's, uh, it's a very fascinating world uh, and, and insular world that uh, I think deserves to be cracked open a little further. Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on Off the Record, produced by WKXL. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of Off the Record. See you then.